This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 83. Today, I am joined by David Gochran, and we're talking all about how to start publishing from zero in 2021. This is the point at which I would usually talk about last week's question, but uh, as you'll hear in the uh, personal uh, bit, I uh, was really busy this week and forgot. So it's very unlike me to uh, not post the podcast. But uh, yeah, I only posted it up in uh, the Rebel Author Facebook group this morning. And so (laughs) there aren't going to be any responses to the question. In fact, I didn't even post the question because yeah, I'm just an idiot who forgot to post it. So I apologise. I will, however, post this week's question, which is what worries you about starting from zero? So straight into the recommendation of the week this week, which is this is how you lose the time war. And that is by Amal El Motar. I think that's how you say the name and Max Gladstone. Now, this is a really interesting book. It's uh, a novella, I believe, although it's still, I think it's over 200 pages. No, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is over 200 pages. So it's kind of a long average novella. I don't know. Anyway, what does even, anyway, but this is not the point. It's not important. I read this book and just devoured it. It was fantastic. It's written uh, from two characters who are sort of, I guess, like half human, half cyborgy type sentient beings that can time travel and they travel through time and they're fighting a war through time and they start leaving each other letters and yeah it was like the author I then read an article which I'm actually going to leave in the show notes between the two authors that explains how they wrote it and essentially they wrote it sat in the same room together and they would swap laptops and so they were writing like I don't they were like writing it like kind of at the same time one was writing the intro bit and then the other one was writing the letter and it's just it's exquisite and I loved like the description and the love and the romance even though it's not very romantic I mean well it's kind it is a romance story but it's not it's not like in your face shagging all over the page kind of romance it's very sweet I suppose. Anyway look it's not really about romance it's about the the war and um the whole world and it was just fascinating and I highly recommend it. So yes that is uh this is how you lose the time war. Oh and another thing to add about it it was uh either I forget if it was the Hugo or the Nebula or one of those big awards anyway it won uh, best novella one year so if you are out to read more award-winning fiction then I recommend this one it's quite short it's a quick read I read it in an afternoon so yeah highly recommend that all right so in personal news to explain why I so badly failed to post the podcast this week I essentially edited like 40,000 words or something. I, I edited like half my book this week, which means I must have edited half of it last week as well. But I think I sort of edited like 60% this week. And anyway, waffling, I have finished editing side characters. Now, I say finished, but having got to the end of the book, 
uh, and like the biggest section of edits. I want to just go back and tweak a few sections to make sure they're as good as they can be. And there's another couple of things that I want to do, including going back and looking at the original set of questions that I was asked by like the Facebook group and patrons uh, on the topic of side characters, just to make sure I have fulfilled everything that um, I think I fulfilled. So yes, I it will be another couple of days and then I'm going to be sending it off to my beta readers. Usually when I get a book back from beta readers, it's a couple of days of editing and tweaking, maybe a week at the most which means I am now in launch mode and launch planning. I am tentatively setting the release date as the end of July. I think the 29th. I don't know yet whether or not I'm going to do a pre-order. Um, I don't really like the pressure of pre-orders, but we, we shall see. I did do one for the Anatomy of Prose, but I feel like I might not this time. I don't know. We'll see. I it yeah depends. Depends how much I start talking about the book beforehand. And obviously, there's no point talking about it unless people can pre-order it. So yes, the other thing this also means is that I am now recruiting for my street team. Uh, so I'm going to have like giveaways for cover reveals. I'm looking for help for like advanced early reviews. Help with promoting it on launch day all of those good things. Interviews, if anyone has like a podcast, they would like me to come on, um, or YouTube channels, all of that good stuff. So basically I am looking to launching and if you would like to help me launch, then I am building a street team and I will leave a link in the show notes to the form. I, 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 I know it's like not everybody enjoys filling out a form to become part of a street team, but it just ensures that we're both a good match uh, for each other uh, because of course I've got lots of swearing and dick jokes in my book and not everybody's comfortable with that, uh, even though they may be listening to the show. So yes, uh, I'm very grateful for anybody in advance who does uh, fill out the form. So yes, thank you very much. And that's in the show notes. So that does all mean that next week I'm going to be focusing on uh, editing the workbook. I don't actually have the workbook beated. I just send it straight to an editor uh, because they're quite, um, I don't know, I've got the hang of the workbook. So yes, that one will be going to the editor probably next week. Um, and then I will spend the rest of the week and uh, going into the following week in the recording booth. My cat is scratching the door again because I want to have my first audiobook done. This is been far too long in the works. So I am determined to get uh, the my first book, 13 Steps to Evil, done and uh, completed and the audio live. Once I've done that one, I don't know where I'm going to go next. I feel like I should go to the Anatomy of Bros, but it's such a beast of a book. It's intimidating to record. So we shall see. Uh, maybe I will do Heroes first. I'm not sure. Of course, I probably ought to do side characters, but until it's been, the edit has been finished, obviously I can't do that. Um, what else, what else? Yes, uh, no, I think mostly I'm just looking to launch. What I'm really pleased about is that I am getting things finished. Um, and of course, after I finish editing both of these non-fiction books, I need to go back and start editing the two fiction books that I have um, because they will then be launched later in the year. And all in the in the meantime, I am also working on drafting uh, The Scent of Death, which is now um, 
yeah, like I've been doing little bits here and there, even though I'm like just focused on one fucking project, Sasha. Uh, but anyway, so I'm, I'm like, yeah, full of beans, I would say, because I'm getting things done and I feel like I'm getting that finishing energy and like that tick box, like high that you get when you complete something. And that's all in around me still having a bit of an existential crisis over the fact that I'm coming to the end of my second year uh, self-employed. So I'm going to do a bonus episode uh, for you guys all about um, like the lessons that I've learned over the last two years. Um, and I'm sort of percolating that in my, my head and I need to write that in the early part of next week. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just like getting to the end of two years, I just feel like I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I? Am I even doing the right things? Oh, and all of this ridiculous stuff. My chair is squeaking. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to move on. All right, Rebel of the Week this week is Val Neal. Val says, if you've never worked in corporate retail in the US, it's a truly soul-sucking experience. Managers make or break how employees feel about their job. During the last major recession, I was stuck in retail and our store manager was pretty bad. If he didn't like you, he'd cut your hours or make you work your days that fucked with your personal life. He'd find any excuse to write you up. He lied to customers about product features in order to make sales. He used slurs and racially profiled customers. My favourite was when he asked me to check out a woman in my department who'd been using the photocopier too long. She was a regular, a teacher, and the reason she was uh, taking so long was because she had so much to copy. I informed him who she was and he immediately came over to kiss ass because teachers were a prized demographic. He had a thing for my supervisor giving her increased hours and being creepily familiar. One time he walked up uh, he walked up while the two of us were at our desk. He started massaging uh, massaging her shoulders while talking to us as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Oh my god. I feel I've got horrible goosebumps. Her face was like a deer in the headlights. I'm not surprised I'd have smashed him in the bollocks. Uh We all bitched in the break room about his behaviour, but the economy was shit and we were worried about having our hours cut or losing our jobs. Some of us had come from other industries and this was the best we could find. Big companies usually have anonymous tip lines, but no one trusted that they stayed anonymous and everyone was worried about retaliation. Enter Tim. Tim didn't give a fuck. One day, when the boss wasn't working, he came to my department and faxed a 17-page list of complaints to HR. I loved him. I don't know who Tim is, but I loved him. Not long after, while the boss was conveniently on vacation for a week, corporate descended on the store and interviewed every single employee. They didn't say what it was about. They simply asked us if there was anything we wanted to tell them. We all spilled, knowing this was our one shot uh, that we had and that we had strength in numbers. When the boss came back from his vacation, he found he didn't have a job. Good. What a fucking wanker. I cannot... uh, I literally, like, my skin was crawling reading that. Who does that? As if there are people that actually do that in this day and age. I don't think I would have been able to restrain myself. I think I would have, like, I don't know, smashed his hand off of me because, ugh, like... Ah, I just, I am, thank God for Tim, that's all I can say. 
If you'd like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or somewhere in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or Instagram me at Sasha Black author. A new patron this week, welcome and a huge thank you to Jennifer Thompson. And of course, a big, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, big cold-hearted black squishy hug from me. And I suppose in a way, that's the kind of hugs I give. Uh, no, I'm joking. A huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. Like, you guys genuinely helped to keep this show running. Um, if it weren't for you guys, you know, I probably would have wobbled. We've done a lot of episodes by now and it, it is hard work keeping this podcast going. I love it, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love interviewing people and yeah, but you guys make me feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile and you keep me going and you're all amazing. So basically like I love you guys and thank you. Uh, yes, so if you would like to get... Um, early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content and also those um, Q&A poison and prose sessions with me uh, once a month then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Don't forget the Rebel Diaries anthology is still open uh, and I think that's it. This week's episode is sponsored by the ever amazing Kobo, so I will play a word from the sponsor and then we'll get straight into the interview. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Joni. And we're from the Kobo Writing Life podcast. Kobo Writing Life is Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. If you're looking for some tips on growing your indie publishing business this year, the Kobo Writing Life podcast is a great resource. We've talked to authors big and small and they always have something to teach us. One of my favorite episodes from the recent months was our conversation with Karen Slaughter, who's a best-selling crime author with years of experience. She discussed with us her career, delved into what makes a great crime novel, and she talked about the double standards imposed on female crime writers. Karen also told us about her nonprofit, Save the Libraries, and provided some great advice for aspiring authors. In episode 200, we interviewed Kobo CRM marketing manager Christina Mendez about marketing your books on a global scale. She provided tips for global messaging, the importance of being universal but not generic. She discusses the different tactic Kobo uses to market ebooks and audiobooks and explains how the Kobo recommendations algorithm works. My favorite part of the interview is when Christina shares her insights about what makes the Kobo customer unique. Spoiler alert, the Kobo customer is a voracious reader and they're constantly reading. They love to read long series and the most popular genres are romance and thrillers. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life or our podcast, check out our blog and find us on social media. You can find our podcast on all podcast providers. If you're ready to start your self-publishing journey, you can create your free account at kobo.com slash writing life. Bye, Rebels. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm super excited because I am joined by David Gochran. David has been one of those mentors from afar for me as I've read his books, I've followed his blog, and I've absolutely absorbed everything I possibly can from him. And I am super excited because I think you guys are going to get a shit ton of value from this episode. So first of all, let me tell you a little bit about David. David lives in Portugal, but comes from Dublin, where the rain comes up from the ground and everyone has pints for hands. He is the author of uh, his 
historical adventures and has helped thousands of authors to self-publish their work via his workshops, blog, and books such as Let's Get Digital, Strangers to Superfans, Bookbub at bookbub ads experts which is easy for me to say and many more he's been featured in the telegraph the irish times the guardian the sunday times huffington huffington post forbes and many more alongside a smattering of wanted posters welcome well that's quite an intro i think i need to get you to introduce me professionally from now on (laughs) you do far a far better job of it than i do that's for sure oh thank you um well, would you like to start by, I guess, sort of a summary of, of your journey and how you've got to where you are today? Well, before I started writing and uh, self-publishing and all that, um, I was working for one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And the job was really interesting and, and, and fulfilling and rewarding. But I personally wasn't happy working in an office. And I always knew that I ultimately wanted to be a writer. So at the first opportunity, I think it was just after the IPO, I got my shares, I cashed them in. And I went traveling around the world, basically hunting for, for an idea for a book. Well, I actually started writing something absolutely terrible. And thankfully, I didn't finish or publish that or show it to, to anyone. I showed it to one person. They were like, burn it, burn it now. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I, yeah. So I took that advice. And, uh, and then eventually I started like a, a proper book, you know. Um, and then, you know, I, I did that kind of dance with agents that a lot of authors used to do. I guess they're not doing it as much anymore where, you know, I submitted to every single agent in the English speaking world and actually a few German ones as well. I was getting pretty desperate at the end. And uh, they all, they all pretty much said no, but they all said no, obviously. Um, But uh, like, I'm not some living proof that like, you know, the agent system is broken because like, you know, my book was so brilliant or whatever. It still, you know, wasn't quite there yet. It was, I was pretty much done the first draft and thought it was finished. Mm. I think, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of authors experienced that. Um, luckily I didn't publish the first draft so I, at least I didn't make that mistake so you know score one for me um, but that background of, of working in, in tech turned out to be really really useful when I got rejected by all those agents and started looking into self-publishing because not only did I have to you know set up my own publishing business and and learn all that stuff and get into the marketing side of it and then I had the kind of tech and marketing background to help me but it also helped me just get my head around the whole idea of self-publishing because when I, was, when I was working in online advertising, this was around 2004, 2005, I was seeing like business after business get disrupted by the internet. And it, it happened in turn, you know, it wasn't every business at the same time. First, it might've been, you know, insurance brokers, you know, where people could go online and compare insurance rates or, or travel agents, they were, they were a big one. They were convinced, like every industry is convinced, like the publishing industry is, was convinced that it has too much specialized knowledge to ever get disrupted by the internet. And of course, that wasn't true. You know, people are more than happy to, you know, read reviews online of hotels and resorts and restaurants and everything else. And so when it came to publishing's turn and publishing was kind of last in the queue to get disrupted by the Internet for a bunch of different reasons. And I heard all the same arguments that I'd heard from 10 different industries before when when I was working in tech, that publishing was had a special you know, curatorial role, that it had certain knowledge, it had certain skills, there was a certain mystique around it all. And I'd, I'd seen this movie before and I knew exactly how it ended. So I was like, right, here we go. I'm ready to pounce. So I dived straight in and, and, and you know, just started really, really enjoying it. Like it was absolutely a plan B for me. I wanted an agent. I wanted a traditional publisher. But as soon as I started self-publishing, like literally when I uploaded the first short story and then got a first review from a stranger or a first sale that I didn't, you know, 
from a person that I didn't literally drag, you know, to Amazon and make them purchase it in front of me. Uh, the first time that happened, I was like, this might actually work. And I think <laughs> this is the path for me. Like this feels a lot better than getting a snooty no from a snooty agent, uh, even though I deserved it. Maybe I didn't deserve the snootiness. Uh, but that that just felt much more fulfilling to me. And it felt, it really energized me. And, and like my, my writing speed improved, my confidence improved. Whereas like, when you're pursuing the agent path, even when you're like making progress, like, you know, they start using your name in the rejections as opposed to dear author, you know, or they start using your book title. You're like, oh, more, even more progress. They care slightly more about saying no to me in a, in a polite way. Uh, you have all these weird little milestones when you're querying agents, you know, and there's this whole kind of, um, this whole kind of, there's whole forums out there where people try to decode the different kind of no's they get from agents. Like, is this a good no or a bad no? Like, um, but you waste a lot of energy on that. And for me, it was it was starting to affect my writing. Like I wasn't doing what I should have done if I really wanted an agent, which was try and look at why this book isn't commercially appealing to agents, try and write something which meets, meets the market halfway. I wasn't doing any of those things because I didn't have the confidence to do it. I was questioning myself as a writer, as a human being, quite honestly. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I wasting all this time? Whereas self-publishing was just all positive. It was like, I have skills that can, you know, can be useful in this area. I feel good about myself. I feel good about writing. I feel like I can do anything. So, you know, I knew straight away once I started self-publishing, that was it. I was no longer interested in, in traditional publishing and that hasn't changed. I still have absolutely no interest in that path. Yeah, I love that. And it's thanks to people like you and Joanna um, that, you know, I I never even had a rejection because I just, you know, I saw the the two models and the benefits and 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 not of each of them and was like, yeah, fuck that. I'm just gonna go <laughs> self-published. Um, okay, and so speaking of self-publishing, we're in uh what is it February 2021 as we record and so um I have like a audience of uh, writers a lot of them are uh, very new either beginning self-publishing or they've sort of published one maybe two books and I think a lot of them will be asking you know is it really still possible to actually start from zero now um as an indie author um and I think I don't know some of this might be because you see lots of very loud voices that you know say you know where they are and it feels impossible I'm trying to be polite um and so yes can you fill my audience with confidence is it still possible and if it is possible to start from zero like what are the key elements a writer needs to take into account well, I think, you know, there's a danger in, you know, those kind of loud voices you're talking about. Like, like I understand it on a human level. Like it's, if someone posts in a Facebook group, oh, I'm really struggling or, you know, I'm finding this very hard and it'll get a lot of likes or sympathy. And as it should, you know, that's, that's a good thing to do to kind of console somebody. But it's very rude to come along and go, well, I, I'm actually finding this very easy or you're actually doing this all wrong. You know, that's not the appropriate response to someone on a human level. And so people might get a skewed view and an overly negative view of what it's like to self-publish in 2021. And I've been doing this for 10 years now. And every single year, people have asked, is it still possible this year? Is it harder this year? And I think that is the, that is the underlying kind of assumption or question uh, there that you know, people are assuming that it's harder in 2021. I don't think it's harder. And like, I'm sure some newbies or lots of newbies and lots of experienced authors will you know, vehemently disagree with me. But I actually don't think it's harder in 2021. Like I think back to 2011 when I started, and yes, it's a lot less complicated. It's definitely more complicated in 2021. 
But that's mostly because we have all these amazing tools for reaching readers. Now, some of them are very complicated. Some of them take years to learn. Some of them take thousands of dollars to learn when you're talking about something like, like Facebook ads. But they didn't exist as a viable way of selling books back in 2011, or at least I wasn't aware of them. Um, you know, like working the BookBub ads platform and, the, and that whole the feature deal system might seem like, you know, people speaking Greek when they're talking about it. Um, but that didn't even exist back in 2011. Back in 2011, when I started, the very biggest sellers were selling like a thousand books a month. And when someone re sold a thousand books in a month, that was a genuine milestone. We would pop the virtual champagne, like, you know, the, 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 the 30 people that were self-publishing at the time or whatever it was, that yeah, was a bit more than that. But um, like on the, on the main self-publisher forum at the time, K-Boards, there, there, there might've been like, I don't know, 10 or 20 people that had reached that milestone. Everyone knew their names and you had not may, maybe made it, but you were definitely on the way. You're, you're, you're on the fast train to success once you'd hit a thousand books sold in a month. It was a genuinely big deal. Now you can do that in a day. You can sell two or three times that in a day with the right you know, ad on the right promo site. So that's how much the game has shifted. Yeah, it is more complicated. Yeah, there's a lot more stuff to learn. And yeah, maybe you do need to spend a bit more money um, in, on the marketing side of things. But I think there's, there's some very cheap ways to, to handle that as well. So yeah, that, all that is different. And it looks harder when you have this impenetrable knot of like jargon and all these different skills and things that you have to learn, especially when you don't like break it down bit by bit. But authors need to remember, they've already done something much harder, I think, if they've written a good book. Like there's way more moving parts to a good book than a good marketing plan. Like it's way, I, I think it's still the hardest thing to write a good book. Um, so if you've already you know, conquered that, if you've already climbed that mountain, you are more than capable of learning what needs to be learned to build up your author platform, to start putting together marketing plans, to start finding your readers. You're more than capable. So that's what I would say. Yes, it's more complicated, but the prizes are much, much bigger. They really are. Like the market has just simply multiplied. There's so much more room for more authors to make a living and in more genres too. Back in 2011, you pretty much had to be writing thrillers or romance or, or science fiction fantasy or erotica. And you know there was only a handful of authors in each genre that were really making good money. Now there's a huge number of authors in almost every imaginable niche making money. So maybe harder in one sense, but maybe a lot easier in another sense too. So what do you think are the most common mistakes that newer writers make when they approach marketing? And probably using the wrong tool for the job. And that might be a bit unfair because they don't know what all the tools are and what they can do. Um, or maybe they're using the wrong tool for the wrong stage in their career. I think it's very easy to want to jump straight to the flashy stuff like, oh, I want to do rapid release. I want to do, you know, a big Facebook ads campaign. What's a lookalike audience? That sounds cool. Uh, leave that stuff alone for a few years. Like there's honestly enough to be getting on with, with, you know, learning your niche. Well, first learning your craft and working on your craft. I'm still working on my craft. I think, you know, most authors, you will start plateauing quite fast if you don't constantly work on your craft. And at the start of your career, you should be spending most of your time not just working on your craft, but figuring out what the market wants and how to meet it halfway. Like not necessarily go full on into writing to market, but maybe finding some kind of balance that makes you happy, you know, because I think that's really important for a long and sustainable career. And I always try and tell authors, you know, stop focusing on one book, start thinking about a career and start thinking about, you know, just slowly plotting your way to where you want to be. Like everyone wants to press fast forward and already have six books out there and, you know, 10,000 Facebook likes and 50,000 people on their mailing list. But there are no shortcuts to this stuff. So just take it slowly, take it bit by bit. You know, it, like writing a book is an impossible task until you break it down 
into, you know, 50 chapters that need to be written or, you know, five pages in each chapter or whatever else, then it starts to become manageable, something that you can tackle day by day and just, you know, slowly progress to your target and, and take the same attitude to marketing and building up your audience and your readership. Like none of the big sellers that you see out there today arrived like that. They all mm-hmm. built up there slowly. Everybody starts from zero. And that's, that's the, the point I was trying to get to with that, you know, and like, it's a question everyone has, how do you start from zero? Like, how do you not start from zero? Is the <laughs> question I like to throw back at them. Everyone starts at zero, unless you're like one of the Kardashian clan who has a ghostwriter turning out really awful science fiction books with your name on the front. Like, unless you're, unless you're that kind of person, and I can't help you if you are one of the Kardashians, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but for everyone else, right, you are starting from zero. Um, but everyone started from zero. So everyone took this journey. And sometimes it's hard to look at someone who's selling a million books a year and figuring out how they did it. And, and it is because you don't see all the interim stages. But sometimes maybe it's more helpful to look at someone who's on the way there or someone who's just a step in front of you or two steps in front of you. And that's something achievable. And then when you get to that stage, then you can start looking at the next stage after that. And just in terms of specifics, because that was a lot of generalities, authors might, you know, on day one, be looking to launch a big Facebook campaign. And I would say, slow down. You know, I wouldn't even touch Facebook ads, maybe, until you have two or three books out there. What you should be focusing at the start, like before you publish your first book or, or just after you publish your first book, you should be looking at more things like branding and positioning. Like, mm-hmm. is my cover right for the genre? Does my book, if I can get my book into the epic fantasy charts, will it look like the other books that are already in the epic fantasy charts? Will it be some, because those are the books that readers are already responding to. Like the Amazon charts are the best market research tool available to any author because that's what readers are already responding to. Mm-hmm. Your book should be packaged like other books in the charts in your niche, right? And not just like, you know, you shouldn't just look like a romance. It should look like a Regency romance or a historical romance. And then they go even deeper again. You know, not just historical romance. If it's, you know, you know if it is Regency, it, it should look a certain way. It should have a ball gown. If it is, you know, Scottish historical romance, it should have a burly chap in a kilt with a sword. Like you really need to drill down to your niche and you need to price your book like other books in your niche. You need to write your blurbs in the style that other blurbs in your niche are written in because there's a vast difference across genres. Like even like the, the style of the fonts, you know, the, the composition. Now you gotta be careful here because you really shouldn't copy another author because that can get you in serious hot water with readers and with authors and with lawyers, right? And you don't want trouble on any of those fronts. But it's not about copying someone else. It's just about fitting in. You don't want to stick out. And I think definitely the artier authors, if you like, struggle with this a bit more because their natural instinct is to be different, right? To row against the tide. And that's, that's why they're artists. And I don't want them to completely suppress that instinct. But when it comes to something like picking your cover, writing your blurb, this is put your business hat on. Throw that, throw that bare A away. Put your business hat on because this is, a, this is commercial packaging, right? The, 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 the place to communicate your artistic soul to readers, if you like, is with your characters and your plot and your twists and your big battles and your sex scenes and everything else. It's not with your cover. It's not with your, your tagline. It's not with your Facebook ad copy. Like those are all business decisions and readers like things to be presented to them in familiar packages. Even if you're going to subvert all those tropes and everything else inside the book, they still want a familiar package or else they won't open it in the first place. They'll never get to see all your dazzling originality if you put too much dazzling originality into your cover. This is 
one of the things funnily enough I was um talking I think it was I've done a few interviews this week I think it was Jane Friedman and I was saying that um I'm quite surprised that um one of the questions I've been asked most recently is um like about genre and um authors not knowing their genre or knowing like a where they're pitching their book but be think simple things like who are their comparison authors you're not being able to to reel off a list of authors I mean you don't need to know every single author ever but you know five or six or ten um you know or like tropes or distinguishing features about your particular genre and I perhaps naively assumed that that was something that everybody was doing so I really yeah I really appreciate that you've mentioned that because I think it's something specifically at the moment that I'm seeing a lot of authors like asking questions about or having gaps in their knowledge about so yeah yeah and, and you've got to be you've got to be reading in your niche you've got to be know what's going on in niche you know who is selling and not 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 because necessarily you, you want to bump into them at a conference and buy them 10 drinks and find out all their secrets. Although that could be fun as well. <laughs> but because you want to know what readers are responding to. Like these are the tropes that are that our readers are responding to. These are the covers that readers are responding to. And, and you need to know that. And like I think sometimes authors can be a little bit dismissive of other books in their genre, especially if they kind of feel like a square peg in a round hole, or they might, you know, be subverting some of those tropes or doing something slightly differently. Um, or the other mistake that newer authors can make, I think, is being snooty about books that sell a lot, whether it's Fifty Shades or Dan Brown or whatever else. And everyone has authors they love to hate. Like, I love hate reading Dan Brown. I love doing it. There's just something about his prose style, which I hate so much that I actually love reading it. With, with all respect, all due respect to Dan Brown, he has millions and millions of fans. Clearly, you know, he's a far more popular writer than I will ever be. So, you know, whatever uh, he's probably saying if he's listening in. <laughs> Hello, Dan. Um, but, you know, everyone has an author like that, that they can't understand why they're successful. But I respectfully suggest, and I try and do this with Dan Brown, I try and figure out why it's successful. Like, if his prose really is that workman-like, if I am right about that, I, I could be wrong. Why is he selling so much? Why do readers love it so much? Why do some readers react like so negatively to me saying something like that? I've got to understand that as an author and as a business person, I've got to understand that. And then when I do that, then I start learning a lot from Dan Brown. Like his books are like glue. Like when I am hate reading his books, I do it very quickly and not because I want to get to the end. I am absolutely gripped. Like I'm absolutely gripped. It's like being in a fascinating prison cell or something. Like I just, I'm completely trapped in this world of Dan Brown that I hate, that <laughs> I love. There's something I love about it as well. So I've got to understand that, right? He's got that X factor that other writers that I don't enjoy reading have. Like, like Patterson, for example. I, I don't enjoy reading Patterson's books, but he's got something there that grips the reader and holds him. And usually that X factor is pacing, but it can be different from, from author to author. So if the author you like to bitch about is... E.L. James or James Patterson or Stephen King or whoever, it doesn't really matter. I, re I think you will, it, it behooves you to understand why those books are selling and not just to dismiss them and to understand you now what it is that readers are so attracted to, despite all these limitations that you purportedly have, have spotted. Oh, I completely agree. I um, never, ever, ever read a book without a pencil, which I know is sacrilege and sticky tabs. And I, I, I mean, this is how I ended up writing craft books in the first place, but I, I dissect things down to a forensic level when it comes to craft. And um, yeah, so I, I love this. Like I'm obsessively like, and also I definitely hate read, but they will remain nameless. <laughs> it's, um, it's not, it's not me, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'll tell you after. Um, <laughs> okay, so thinking about then like marketing and promotion, 
what let's take a because I'm going to ask you a sort of secondary follow-up question but let's take an author publishing their first book this year what are the principles of marketing and promotion that they or, or the act the main activities they should undertake when publishing their very first book well I think their, their predominant focus should be on on getting the book right like it's such a huge challenge to write a good book and especially to write your first and um, that I try and tell them like just not to focus on this stuff like get the book finished and, and then, you know, try and determine whether it's just a first draft you finish and whether it needs a couple more. You got to go through the beta, beta reading process as, as painful as that might be. You got to go through a self-editing process. And then if you're self-publishing it, you've got to send it to a proper editor as well. But while all that is happening, there is some other stuff you can do. And like everyone's different, but I personally prefer to write in the mornings because that's, even though I'm, I'm most definitely not a morning person. So I used to always write in the evenings. And then when I switched it up to write in the mornings, I find that I was getting a lot more done. I have a lot more creative energy in the mornings. And then in the evenings, I can take care of all the admin stuff, business stuff, whatever else. Anyway, that's just me. Other people might be different. But I'm I would exactly recommend- the same. I would recommend that when, the, when you do have free time, when you're not focused on improving your craft and getting that, that book done, there's not so many marketing activities that I specifically recommend engaging in for a first time author. There is a couple of things you must have in place. Like I think it's very important to have your email list set up so that you can capture any reader interest from day one. Um, and, and that's the only really essential when it comes to like your platform, at least like a website is a nice to have, but really these days you can make up a pretty nice temporary landing page on something mm. like MailerLite that will do the job. Right. So I would just focus on getting your, your mailing list up and running and having a little welcome sequence there. And even and, and if you really want to, you know, take it to the next level, having some kind of freebie or reader magnet there to, to help drive those sales from day or those signups from from day one or even in advance of publication of your book, as some people do nowadays. And that's a very good strategy. And um, if you have time, you can get a website up and running. But honestly, the most important part of your website, certainly for the first few years of your career, will be that sign up page for your mailing list anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, you can make it better and more optimized when it's on a website you can control. So if you have the time, definitely do that. But a temporary landing page will more than do the job. Um, I would also recommend setting up a Facebook page, um, even if you're not just going to, even if you're not going to do much with it to begin with, and even if you're not going to run so many ads to begin with. I think it's useful to have one there to kind of passively collect likes for you, if you like, so that you have a link to it from the back of your books. And then if you have time and you want to do a little bit of content marketing on your Facebook page, like just sharing things of mutual interest with your readers, that can help accelerate the process as well. And that's even before you are in a position or have the ability to spend any money on growing your Facebook platform or running any Facebook ads. It can be useful just to even just, you know, once a week, throw a bit of content out there, just so there's some reason for people to, to follow you, there's some reason for them to like you on Facebook and so on. But aside from that, I don't, I don't actually recommend doing any heavy marketing before book one is out. And even like the really heavy stuff, more complex stuff, I would even wait until you have a few books out there. Mm, I love that because so many people get caught up thinking they have to be on every single you know social media channel and I've more or less quit Twitter I've more or less quit a whole bunch of things and now you know I have a Facebook group and I have an Instagram and that is it because those are the things that I enjoy doing and therefore I do them <laughs> so I might as well just stick doing the things that I actually enjoy doing okay so let's wind on a bit um and you've mentioned like 
maybe not doing all of the heavier marketing stuff until you ha have a couple of books. So let's say an author is publishing their third or fourth uh, book in a series or in the same genre uh, this year. What are the key launch differences between that kind of author and an author publishing their first book this year? Well, there's so much you can do and so much more that becomes economically viable once you have like three books in a series or four books in a series that simply don't make sense with a book one, you'll just be, you'll be in the red, um, no matter how good your ads are, no matter how good your, your ad images are, no matter how good your book is, it's really hard to make a profit when you just have one book out there, especially in the ad environment we have now in 2021. But once you have three or four books out there, you know, you're gonna be making money. You've, you have several things that readers can buy fundamentally, right? And that, that changes the equation completely. But also you have way more options. Like your options just start to multiply in terms of what you can do marketing wise. And not just in terms of what makes sense in terms of a return on that investment, just the, the literal options in terms of what you can do. So one thing I like doing if I'm launching a book three or a book four, for example, I might run a free promotion or a 99 cent sale on, on the book one. And then I might do like a smaller sale on the book two, like I might drop it to 199 or something like that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll sell the rest at full price. So it's not a really aggressive sale, but I'm offering a couple of discounts there to try and move readers through the series as quickly as possible. Trying to get readers to actually buy the whole series at once if I can convince them to do that. And there's, there's a bunch of things you can do to convince readers to actually grab your whole series at once. Is there anything that would make you do free over 99 cents on that book one? Not necessarily. Um, free becomes more attractive um, the longer the series is or the bigger your catalog is in general, it makes more sense. Free is also more attractive as a temporary thing, if you're in Kindle Unlimited, because you will get direct compensation from that. Like if you get enough free downloads, you will see a spike in page reads the following week. Um, free is also a very attractive thing to do permanently when you're wide, you know, it's one of the best ways to get sales going on other platforms. But all that aside, just generally speaking, I like to switch it up because I find like I'm reaching different readers when I run a free promotion or when I run a 99 cent sale. So that allows me to keep things fresh in terms of the eyeballs that I'm hitting, but also fresh on my side as well. So I don't feel like, you know, sometimes like when you've got a book out there for like three or four years and you're looking at the cover and go, man, that cover looks really, really tired, you know? And it's not like, it's still the same cover it was three or four years ago. You're just tired of looking at it because you've been looking at it a thousand times. And you have to remember that readers aren't looking at it a thousand times. They're encountering it for the first time. So I think sometimes you can get a bit tired if you keep using the same tactics over and over. And then, you know, that starts to translate into the emails that you're writing, the ad copy that you're writing on Facebook and everything else. So it keeps me on my toes, but I also think there's a, there's an actual tangible benefit in terms of you are actually reaching different readers and you're using different sites. Like, like I would use free booksy and fussy librarian when I was pushing a freebie. If I was pushing a 99 cent deal and um, I, I might or might not use Bargain Booksy because I personally haven't had as good results with that as I have with Free Booksy. But I'd be more inclined to use something like ENT or Robin Reed. So I'm literally reaching different, different readers and advertising in different places. So I find that that keeps it all fresh. Instead of going back to the same readers every month or two with the same offer, I think you know, that's, you're going to get diminishing returns pretty quickly. And I, I do see authors doing that. They, they look onto a formula. Like, let's say they're launching a book four and they decide to do free book one, 99 cent book two, and 199 book three, and then maybe 299 or 499 full price new release. And they do that and it's, and it's hugely successful for them. And then it comes to the next launch and they do the exact same thing again. And then they can't understand why it hasn't been as successful because mm. you need to freshen it up. I think, you know, you can, you can do different price offers. You can, you know, reach different audiences. You can try, you know, pushing on BookBub instead of Facebook, or you can just use, 
different promo sites and reach different readers. And that's easier to do when you're, when you're going out there with a different offer. You're also going to tend to be less lazy then. You won't reuse the same promo graphics. You'll try and make something new, which means you'll probably make something better. And it just keeps it all fresh on both sides of the equation. I'm, I'm going to have to come back and take loads of notes from this. Um, okay, so I have a question from a patron. Cassie says, is there um, a different approach when launching a book in a new genre when you're already established in a different genre? Well, the first question I would ask is whether you have made a decision on what name you're going to release that book under. And I think that everything else then kind of spills from that. Um, and I think that's a very difficult question. You're going to get people who are hugely in favor of splitting everything out under different names mm. and then people who are violently opposed to it. And, and, and some of those people will have tried it both ways and either like doing it or, or dislike doing it. People react to it differently. Um, personally, I think it's if there's very little crossover between the two genres you're talking about, like for me, I write nonfiction and I write historical fiction. There's very little crossover there. So it makes more sense for me to write those, to release those under, under two different names. And it's just an initial in, in my name for the fiction. Um, I'm, I've been toying with the idea. I've actually been working on it for a while and on and off of writing some science fiction. I'm going to be doing that under a completely different and secret pen name because I want to separate that out because there's no overlap between historical fiction and science fiction and nonfiction. Those are three distinct genres. Um, if you're talking about something like, I don't know, contemporary romance and romantic suspense, where you'll have some overlap, quite a bit of overlap or, or mystery and suspense or, you know, crime and thriller or science fiction and fantasy, where there's quite a bit of overlap. I think the case is stronger for maybe keeping it under one name. I know some authors who will still do it, but the thing is each new name needs to get built up separately. It has separate costs. It has separate mind space and effort. It's, it's a lot of work. You know, each new name is a lot of work if you do properly. Like if you set up a separate mailing list, set up a separate website, set up a separate welcome sequence, you know, separate email address to talk to readers. Um, and, and that goes, and then there's an extra layer of work if it's a pen name that you have to or want to keep secret for whatever reason. Mm. You know, then you have to take extra steps to, to stop people sniffing around because people will, they get curious. It's just natural. Um, so yeah, so all that stuff is a lot of extra work. And I started off writing everything under one name and I think it was one of the biggest, well, there's quite a few contenders for this title, but it was one of the biggest mistakes I made. I wish I'd done everything under separate names from the start, despite the fact that it's a lot of extra work. I relaunched um, my fiction, my historical fiction, uh, it's about a year ago now. And yeah, it, I actually had greatly underestimated how much work it is to set up a new Facebook page, page, get those first 10 likes again. Cause I didn't want to tell anyone publicly what I was doing. Cause then I knew like some well-meaning authors would come along and like my page. And I was trying to build a totally separate and distinct audience because I had a huge problem on Amazon with my also bots getting polluted. Like I, I would launch a historical novel and then, you know, Joanna Penn and Chris Fox and all these people would pop up in my also bots. And I'd be like, now Amazon's going to recommend my book to their readers instead of historical fiction readers. So, you know, that's the cost of not doing it. So for me, at least, it might be different for other authors, that cost was far too big and it was affecting the success of my fiction books. So yeah, I relaunched everything. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I, I relaunched everything in uh, about a year ago and it was way more work than I thought. And it's way, it's more work than I thought to maintain it as well, quite honestly, but I still think it was worth it. And I, I would recommend that where you don't have that crossover I talked about. So I had this problem. <laughs> I launched, um, I launched under uh, my, uh, so 
I launched my fiction under a uh, like a very tiny variation of um, uh, my current pen name and um, immediately regretted it because I hated the name that I'd chosen and didn't spend enough time thinking about what the name should be um, and then realized how much work it was going to be. Now, um, so I then brought it all under the same name. So I have, I do pollute. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not too bad, but um, I do have my nonfiction and fiction under the same name. Um, and like the further I get in, the more I'm like, oh, should I split it again? Should I add another initial? But the more now what I do do is I keep my mailing list separate. And for me at the moment, that's enough to keep the also brought more or less clean. Um, also, the other thing is I have like surveyed my readers and there is I have like over a 20 percent crossover, which I don't really understand because there shouldn't be a crossover. Um, but yeah, like it is a really difficult one because. <laughs> when I said when I started separate I was like oh my god like everything takes so much time as it is I just it you know all of the extra additional social media and all of the extra all of this stuff and I just couldn't do it I just didn't have back then I was still working full-time so and I just didn't have the amount of time that I have now um it's such a hard one to answer and it, there I don't think there is necessarily well I mean I mean marketing wise there is a right answer really but um you know <laughs> like for me personally I just can't do it anyway right let's move on um how can wait let me rephrase this when you have a launch it's really exciting and it's lovely because you get tons of sales on day one and you get fairly you know quite a few sales on day two and then on day three there's not really quite as many and by the end of the first week you're you know there's not really many sales coming in anymore so how can a writer continue to get sales between launches yeah it's it's an awful feeling like the, the it's like air being like slowly being leaked <laughs> out of a balloon the balloon that is your ego yeah. <laughs> um and i think you know there's 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 two things i would say firstly uh and authors might think this is weird but i actually don't do a lot of promotion or marketing or not direct promotion anyway between launches uh i'm happy well i'm not happy to let sales slide but i will accept sales sliding and i like to concentrate my promotion and my marketing around certain moments okay so i will wheel out the big ones for a launch or if it's a, a backlist promotion i'm doing and I, I and i will hammer everything pretty hard and then if i've done my job amazon will take over and do the selling for me to a certain extent and things will kind of gradually fall down over the next couple of months until the next time that I run a sale or promotion or otherwise throw some big marketing at my books. And I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to let my sales slide. I'm happy to let my ranks fall. Um, and then overall, I feel like at the end of the year that I'm coming out way ahead. And I'm also not stressing every day mm. about my ranks or my sales. I, I don't check my sales that often. Um, certainly not, not as much as I used to anyway. And I'm not running around every day on the kind of promo treadmill and I'm mm. a lot happier for it. But there's also, um, there's also a logic to it. So what I tend to do with any promotion or any launch is I don't hit everything hard on day one. I will, what I aim to do with every single promotion that I run is to string together maybe five or so days of consistent sales and kind of rising if anything, okay? So I won't have that kind of, you know, big start and then, you know, dropping down, 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 down. Because Amazon just sees this book is on the way down. So it just, 
lets it fall in, lets it slide into the primordial ranking ooze, possibly never to return, right? We've all been there. Um, so what I do is like, I'll start and it takes a lot of discipline and you have to sit on your hands and it takes a bit of practice. So don't worry if you don't get it right the first time, but I'll hit like, you know, a fifth of my mailing list on day one. And I might, you know, start the very first small Facebook ads on day one or day two. And then day two, I'll hit a slightly bigger or slightly more engaged segment of my mailing list and so on. And I'll split it out over four or five days. And same with my Facebook ads. I'll start them small enough and then I'll step them up. And then I might even start my book of ads till day three or day four. And when I do start them, I'll probably just target myself first, target my own followers and then move on to my comp authors. And same with Facebook. I'll start with my core audiences first. I'll start with, you know, my custom audiences. So my list, um, my, my likes, my page engagement, my website traffic. And then I'll start to move on to the interests, you know, targeting my genre or whatever else. Um, and then I just, I just try and kind of build it up, like step it up a little bit every day until day five or whatever the last day is. I'll try and hit it a bit hard and finish strong and then stop and then put my feet up and, and leave it in the lap of the gods. The gods being Amazon and Jeff Bezos, of course. And if I've done the job right, and I don't always get it right, even you know, after doing this for 10 years, if I've done my job right, Amazon will take over and start selling that book for me. And they'll push it reasonably strongly for a month, two months, sometimes three months. I've, I've had Amazon take over and push it pretty strongly for six months before, which was really cool. <laughs> I wish that would happen every time. But usually I will get you know, at least a month or two of love from the algorithms. And, you know, it's, you're not going to be hitting that, you know, I think my last launch, I, I just missed out in the top 100. I was like about 120 or 140 in the US. So pretty good, but not, you know, not something where you'd be posting screenshots on Facebook. Maybe actually I probably did post a screenshot on Facebook, but I, 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 was, I, was, I was waiting to get into the top 100. I was hoping I would, but I didn't quite get there. Um, but anyway, and then it fell down and then it, it sat at about a thousand in the rankings for a month or so. And then slipped down to about 2,000 for the next month or so. And then it was down to about, you know, five, something like that. I can't remember the exact details, but that's the kind of pattern you want to see. Like, it's not like Amazon's going to take over and keep your book at 120 in the charts for six months. I wish. Um, if someone knows how to do that, please uh, email me. But, but you can make a lot of money. And I think, you know, newer authors especially, they focus on their peak rank. And, and they lose discipline and they hit everything all at once. And they're trying to maximize that rank for bragging rights for that, Facebook screenshot, you know, and you know, it's, it's, it's natural to feel that way. I still feel that way after launching however many books, I still have to sit on my hands. I still have to close the laptop, walk away, go for a walk, whatever else, just to stop myself from, you know, hitting all my list, rolling out all my Facebook ads, burning through all my launch budget and all that. And I have to just, you know, step it up day by day and remind myself, this is, this is actually what will make me much more money in the long run, long run, because that peak rank, you know, like you'll hit that and then you'll fall. And nothing will happen. And then and it's actually, it's really deflating. It's really depressing is, mm. to have that happen. Whereas if you see this kind of, it's more like a, a, a plane glider. It just kind of glides along and you're not doing anything. You're not pushing anything. You're not running around telling people to buy your book. You're not spending money. Amazon is doing that for you. And frankly, Amazon is better at selling than any of us. So I'm more than happy, you know, to outsource that to, to Jeff Bezos and his motley crew over in Seattle, should they wish. Um, so I try and do that with every promotion, every launch. And, and I don't always hit the mark, but it's one of those things where even if you get it half right, the benefits are huge. Totally selfish question now that I'm just throwing at you. Um, do you use similar uh, launch methods for like your fiction and your nonfiction? 
the basic fundamental approach of trying to get four or five days or six days or whatever of consistent sales and you know trending upwards is that on a fundamental level is the same but sometimes the tools i use to do the job are different so um you probably found this as well like when you try and advertise to writers on facebook for example you have all sorts of people like you know mark dawson whoever else that are you know spending big on facebook ads and working that angle pretty hard and because they're selling a course, like maybe it's someone selling a tool for $99 or someone selling a course for $1,000. That's a totally different ballgame. They have a way bigger margin than I do with a $4.99 book, you know, or a 99 cent book. So they can afford to spend $2, you know, on a click or more, whereas that's not going to work for me. So I like to just, instead of, you know, competing with them in a firefight, in an auction that, I'm, you know, I'm not going to win, um, I prefer to go around them. So I'll do something else. I'll build something for free. I'll give it away. I'll boost my mailing list. I'll use content marketing. Mm -hmm. For me, email marketing, content marketing probably drive more sales for me than everything else put together on the nonfiction side. And then that'll do very little for me. Well, email is important regardless. But, you know, content, I don't do anything on my website for fiction. I don't, I don't have a fiction blog. I do a little bit on Facebook in terms of content marketing. And then, you know, obviously I have my, my list, but my fiction list, I would only email them once a month. Actually, I've just changed the cadence of that a little bit to where I'm trying to get an email out to them every three weeks or so. I'm just trying that. And I feel like that might work for me a bit better, but my nonfiction is weekly, right? Um, so I'm, I'm pushing that, even that angle, even the email I'm pushing much harder with nonfiction. So it's slightly different tools. I don't use Facebook ads as much to sell nonfiction books. I don't use BookBub ads as much to sell nonfiction books. I don't use promo sites as much. I still use them, uh, just not as much. And I lean on all that stuff much more for fiction. Yeah, very similar to me. Although I do use AMS ads, they are always really profitable for me on the nonfiction. I can't get them working for fiction, but nonfiction, they work. Um, okay. You mentioned their reader magnets. So I wondered if you could just explain quickly um, about reader magnets and uh, like, so, well, are there differences in terms of the effectiveness? Because everybody tells you to have a reader magnet and some people say, oh, you can just do a short story. You can do a map download or whatever. But are there reader magnets that work better? Um, and once you have the reader magnet, how can writers then actually use it to find new readers? Well, I think reader magnets, a really good reader magnet, has two important qualities and that is it has to be enticing and it has to be exclusive okay so I, I know some authors would disagree with this but um certainly the exclusive part i think everyone would agree it should be enticing right um so it has to be something that fundamentally readers want you know and um, depending on your reader magnet strategy like if you're i don't do a lot of facebook ads for lead generation i i prefer to focus much more on on, on organic subscribers but i know some authors do that and do it well um, but I would suggest to people pursuing that kind of side of things to think about whether your reader magnet is something that's only for fans versus new to you readers. Because if you're pursuing a lead generation strategy on Facebook, it's got to be something that works for new to you readers. You know, they're not going to care about, you know, the couple that didn't get it on your book or, you know, the assassin that got away because they haven't read that book. So I would just suggest thinking about that. But in general, you're, most people will be writing a reader magnet and trying to interest people at the back of their book. So it's someone, it's pre-qualified traffic, if you like, it's someone that's already read and hopefully enjoyed your stuff. Um, 
so in that case, then it can be one of those things and that can be a very powerful and enticing magnet. So just think about the context and make sure that your magnet is enticing, something that people want. Um, aside from that, I think it's important that your reader magnet is exclusive. I know some authors will make their perma-free book their reader magnet and that puzzles me because if they can get it on Amazon, why would they sign up to your list? Mm. And I know some authors who might have a book that's $4.99 on Amazon and they give that away for free, which is better because you're giving some readers something, you're giving them a free book that they could buy on Amazon. But you will get some readers who are like, you know, I'd rather pay $5 and not jump through the hoops on BookFunnel or whatever else, or not sign up to someone's list. Um, I think the most powerful magnets have to be exclusive. Like certainly, like there's no question, the biggest mailing list growth I have seen is when I've had a really enticing magnet that was also exclusive, something that I could have sold. And like, I think there's a danger here where, you know, authors might say, well, this story isn't selling, I'll use it as a magnet. Then ask yourself, is that really going to be enticing? Like if readers aren't responding to it in the marketplace, is that the best magnet you can offer? I would just ask yourself that question. Like it'll do in a pinch. If you've got nothing else, it's better than nothing. But if you're looking at your mailing list growth and you want to boost that, I would just spend some time crafting something that's genuinely enticing and make your mailing list the only place they can get it even for money, you know, and that will drive a lot of signups for you. And I didn't do this for years because I was worried about freeloaders and I was worried about paying for dead weight on my list and all this kind of stuff. And that was a huge mistake um, because there are ways you can manage that. There's ways you can manage that in the onboarding process, for example, like um, you can just offer, you can, you can put a big unsubscribe button in, in one of your first emails. You know, your first email, you're giving away the magnet and you can second one, you can say, hey, look, if you just want to grab the book and unsubscribe, there's no hard feelings at all. And you can rejoin my list at any time or, you know, whatever else. Like if I know some people don't want to be on list and that's a good way. If you're worried about freeloaders, if you're seeing a lot of that on your list, then put it in, offer them a big unsubscribe button right there in your, in your welcome sequence. You know, you can do that. Um, that's one of many brilliant tips I got from Newsletter Ninja. Uh, by oh, Tammy Lebrecht. Brilliant, brilliant book. Yeah. Um, so like these are all problems that can be solved. So I think, you know, I, I made a mistake for years by not exploring all the possibilities with email because um, I was looking at these problems and these sometimes are genuine problems you have to solve, but there are solutions there. People have mapped out this path already. So don't be afraid of embracing the world of email and seeing all the possibilities there. Like I, I didn't give away a reader magnet for years because I felt like I would track freeloaders. Like, and, and then once I started doing it, mailing list growth went through the roof. And I was like, well, you know, if I have a few freeloaders there, I'm definitely in a better position than I was before with a smaller list. Mm. Um, and, you know, you can manage that with, you know, you, there's various things you can do to, to make, to get people more engaged and then to remove people from your list who aren't engaged or aren't buying books. So these are all problems that can be solved. Okay. Um, one last question before I ask you the podcast question. Um, what um, Are there any like upcoming trends or things that indie authors should be aware of uh, either in 2021 or I guess sort of slightly further into the future? Sorry about that. Allergies killing me today. Um, so let me see. Um, trends. I'm, I, yeah, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time kind of, you know, future casting and all that. I'll leave, I'll leave that to, to Joanna Penn and her, her blockchain robots and all that. Like she's, <laughs> she's, she's far better at that. And I'll just read her blog and she'll tell me what's going to happen. But uh, I do like to, you know, look at the marketplace, see what's going on and just, you know, make changes to my business. I'm, I'm more kind of reactive, I guess, than, than proactive. And that's fine. That, that's, that's working pretty well for me. 
So, for example, like even even before all the you know the coronavirus stuff and the lockdowns and everything started last year, I was already I was already thinking like you know that I needed to beef up my free offers a little bit, or or that it just felt like the right time. I would there was a lot of an, like anti tech sentiment in the press and with various political things going on. I felt like you know I, I could feel like some antitrust stuff was coming. You know that had been it had been percolating for a while, and I felt like it was coming. So I thought this was a, a smart time to really double down on my mailing list strategy and really kind of build up my mailing list and get people off my Facebook page onto my list and onto my site and all that kind of thing. And then when coronavirus started, I was like, well, this, you know, let's speed up that, that idea and shelve a few other things I was planning to do and like really kind of be aggressive with price now in terms of like when I'm doing promotions and really kind of put some very attractive free offers out there and spend a bit of time putting that together. Um, Cause I really felt like people are stuck at home they're not going to be going to bookshops, obviously. There's going to be a lot. And instantly we could see it. Like anyone who had a freebie or a featured deal at BookBub, um, all the distributors and retailers were reporting massive spike in free downloads. And that's all to me is a massive signal that there's a huge number of people entering the market, which makes sense. They can't leave their house. So, you know, reading eBooks suddenly becomes a lot attractive to anyone who was a, who was a print holdout. And even if some of them love bookshops, like I love bookshops. I just haven't bought a lot of print books in bookshops in the last 10 years i just it's it's just easier for me to to buy on my kindle oh, i'm um, still a print whore yeah well like i, I, I you know you can see my bookshelves <laughs> in fairness i just you know i only moved house last year and everything's been shut since but uh, anyway um yeah but a lot of those people who are trying ebooks for the first time and um, like i'm sure some of them will go back to buying books on in bookstores and offline and all that but a huge chunk of those are going to stay around and they're going to stay mm. like once you're, especially if you're living somewhere that no longer has a bookshop, if you're a retired person and you can suddenly avail of all these free and cheap books. And there's all sorts of reasons why people get hooked on eBooks once they start them. Not everyone does. Some people go back to print, but you know, I could see that this was, it was almost like you're getting five years of change all at once. And we're seeing that across, you know, multiple industries where there's, there's just been a massive surge in online shopping across all sectors in, in, in various industries. So I was like, okay, it's 2011 again, right? There's a massive surge of new entrants into the market, which means they're going to love free books, uh, free offers for mailing lists are going to be very powerful. And so are 99 cent deals. So I wanted to reconstruct my business to have more free offers, more aggressive free offers, which is why I built a whole bloody course and made it free. You know, that was part of the reason, but I've also been doing a lot um, on the fiction side and everything just to lead with a perma free now and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that, that's the only way I really kind of look to the future. And I think, you know, the other trend aside from, you know, these lockdowns and this pandemic, which will hopefully we'll get, start getting a handle on as the year progresses and um, that antitrust stuff really did start, you know, really taking off in 2020. And if you look at all the major companies where authors either sell books or get discovered, they're all facing either antitrust investigations or privacy investigations or getting serious heat in the press. So there's, there's a distinct possibility, for example, that Facebook could be broken up. Like the, mm. the SEC is act, actually calling for it to be broken up. So there's a distinct possibility that could happen. And that's one of the main ways that lots of us find new readers. And um, there's a distinct possibility that Google could be broken up in some way or that Amazon could be hobbled in some way. Um, so I think the best, instead of worrying about all that stuff, because I can't affect it, uh, I just protect myself against it. And the best way to do that is to get as many people as possible 
onto my mailing list to try and drag people over from Facebook onto my mailing list. Those people who buy my books on Amazon, try and get them onto my mailing list with as many enticing offers as possible. And then I feel comfortable with whatever happens next. Even if Amazon is, you know, totally taken offline, that would suck and it would affect my income, but it wouldn't hurt me as much now as it would have done last year. Put it that way. Yeah, I think this speaks to how important independence is, which is, you know, part of the point of being an independent author. Um, but like at every single level, not j- I mean, all my books are wide, even though I would make a shit ton more money if I just put them in KU because my genre is a KU genre, whatever. I'll just I'll just be wide on principle. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. And it is like I try not to worry about it because I have tried to set up a business that has multiple streams of income and it has, you know, I have the flexibility and the ability to pivot, but also, you know, it, it, it is a very good reminder that actually I should probably try to push, you know, more audience towards uh, my mailing list and, and things that are more independent. Okay, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Well, my entire nonfiction business is based on the fact that I am really contrary. Uh, and basically what, what happened was when I started first exploring like self-publishing, I was hanging out on a writer's forum, which I won't name, which is more uh, enamored with the traditional publishing um, side of, of, of the publishing industry, shall we say. And I remember getting into an argument with a bunch of people who were like, um, oh, well, the only pe- this is back in 2011, right? So oh, the only people making money from self-publishing are those like Joe Conrad that already have a huge readership, thanks to their publisher and all this kind of stuff, right? Which I knew was totally, it was total bullshit, right? <laughs> I, knew, I knew that was total bullshit. So I said, well, you know what? And I hadn't told them that I was planning to self-publish because they were so negative about it. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to self-publish. And you know what? I'm going to blog every day about it. I'm going to tell everyone exactly what I do, exactly what I sell, exactly what I spend on, how I reach readers. And then you can see for yourself, I'm happy to be the guinea pig here and we'll settle this argument the old fashioned way. So my entire, like, my entire nonfiction business is all built off spite and trying to prove something wrong and trying to rebel against people who are telling me, you know, you'll never succeed at this. So that's the whole reason for my entire, that I've been writing all these author books and everything. It all sprung from that because I started blogging every day, you know, here's how to find an editor. And, you know, I, here's what I learned yesterday about how to find an editor basically. Right. And then when I was finished all that and I'd gone through, you know, the 10 steps of, of publishing a book and I was, talking people through it as I was doing it. And all the people in the comments were publishing their first books at the same time. Some people were publishing, you know, a whole series. Some people were publishing their first short stories like me. And we're all just talking about it, swapping names for formatters, cover designers, places where you could advertise your book. What price should we set? And we're all just figuring it out. It was like I accidentally stumbled across a great idea in retrospect to build a little community of authors. And then when I was finished the 10 steps, somebody said, hey, could you put that together in a PDF so I can download it? print it out because I'm old and I want to just follow it while I'm printing my first book. So I was like, okay. And I just started assembling the PDF and I was like, well, if I'm doing this, I better do it properly. Like, you know, so, you know, I started rewriting some of the bits, fleshing it out and that became let's get digital. And that started my whole like nonfiction career. So that's all based on me just rebelling against somebody telling me what to do. Yeah. And you've had a few versions of that now. I think my, cause I was just looking for my paperback and I think I've got the one where it was like a greeny color which is like a couple of versions before, because you've now got a nice black, like... Yeah, I think the first one had like, it was almost like uh, the idea was um, like Samizdat, you know, like the underground, 
the underground literature in the Czech Republic that was banned by the regime, right? So it has this kind of like red star and it's made to look like kind of worn paper that's been handed from person to person, like this secret rebellious knowledge. So like I definitely played up that theme when I, when I was publishing the first edition. I think I'm on the, on the fourth edition now. So yeah, that's, that, that's the reason for me. I love it. I, I mean, I mean, I... <laughs> I literally love a rebellion. Like there's nothing I love more. And and of rebellions, there's nothing I love more than a big fuck you to a system. Um, that is one of the reasons I basically started uh, writing was because I was so fucking furious with my corporate helmet, as I like to call it. Um, and yeah, so now rebellion is in my veins forevermore. Thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, uh, your Starting From Zero course, anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, sure. So um, probably the best starting point is davidgochran.com and that will have links to my books, my course, uh, my YouTube channel and everything else. But it's a hard name to spell. So I have a little trick that I roll out for podcasts and, and YouTube and everything else. So you can just go to marketingwithastory.com and that should redirect to davidgockin.com, which is much harder to spell. So marketingwithastory.com and, and, and that should take you where you need to be. And then you can go from there to whatever you're interested in. Oh, that's amazing. I will include your normal website link and things in there as well, like in the show Excellent. notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I've learned loads. I hope listeners have gained loads from it as well. And of course, thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to David Gochran, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Marcus E. Akko, and we're going to be talking all about how to indie publish your graphic novels. And I have to say, it is a fascinating conversation. Marcus comes from a film background, and so I think you guys are going to get a lot from this episode. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.